Welcome to another episode of the Legacy Podcast. This episode is going to be number 261. And what you'll find on this episode is a recording of a message that I preached recently to the church in which I pastor for Mount Tabor Baptist Church from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21 as we continue to work our way through expositionally 1 John. And if you want to get an outline for that message, as well as any additional resources, make sure you check out the LegacyPodcast.com, episode number 261. Thanks for listening. Well, if you're like me, sometimes when you look at the news or you hear of an event that took place in the news, you have to ask yourself, what in the world would motivate somebody to do such a thing? You see, I think that all of us have various motivations for certain things. And at times we will have more motivation than at other times. I have found that as I get older, uh, my motivation to do much of anything wanes. (laughs) And I, I suspect that even as I get even older, that will happen more and more. Now, once in a while, I will get in a a, a motivated mood, and my family knows when I get in that motivated mood. In fact, they they call me my man on my mission mode, and I'll wake up in the morning, I'll have a to-do list, and it'll be all ready to go, and I'll start, you know, clapping my hands, getting everybody motivated, start doing something, and they're like, oh dear, he's on his man on the mission mood. But I think it's important for us to realize that there are certain motivations, there are certain things that cause us to want to do something. And in fact, very often in the scriptures, when we are commanded to do something, God is gracious enough to also give us a reason why we are to do that. And what we find here in John's letter in this portion of it is we find several motivations to love. In other words, we are given reasons why it is that we are to love one another. He gives us some instruction that should give us some equipment some, some way by which we can be reminded of why it is that he commands us to love. And there are six of them outlined here, or at least six of them that I have uh, developed within this passage. And the first one is this. The nature of God demands it. In other words, the nature of God demands that we love. We see this in verses 7 and 8. It says, Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. Why? 
for God is love. You see, the very nature of God is love. And if we as his creatures, if we are Christians called after his name, if we are those who call ourselves followers of Christ, it is only natural that if his nature is to love, so should ours. If we are children of God, God by his nature is to love, then we also are to love. You know, there is so much of what we do. And the more and more I I realize this, the more and more I I, I understand it. But uh, so much of who we are is genetics, isn't it? And, uh, you know, that's a good thing. (laughs) It's a bad thing. Um, You know, I, I, uh, I notice every morning in the mirror as I comb my hair that um, more and more of it is lacking. <laughs> and uh, I, I can't help but look at my dad. Why? Because his hairline's almost exactly like mine. And I look at my brother, and his is almost exactly like mine. Now, is that something that was a result of the way in which we were raised up? Nope. It's genetic. If you look at someone's body type, very often their body type resembles... Their parents, their mom and their dad's body type, because that's just genetic. And, of course, you know, we can go into all the different ways. Have you ever gone to the the doctor's office? I'm sure you have. And they give you that medical form that you have to fill out when you go to the doctor. And on that that thing, it says, have you ever had a problem with this? Have you ever had a problem with that? Have you ever had symptoms of this? And there's a whole section in there. At least I found this out when I went to the cardiologist. There's a whole section in there where you're supposed to say any problem that your parents have had related to their heart. And, you know, have they ever had heart murmurs? Have they ever had a stroke? Have they ever had, uh, you know, congestive heart failure? Have they ever had heart attacks? You know, and the list goes on and on. Why are they asking you that? Because very often what they had will be passed on to you. Now, this is really good is you've got good genes. Not so much if you don't. Well, if we translate that to the spiritual realm. And if God by his very nature is love, and we are his children called after him, we are, we are his people, and we are by, uh, by grace and by adoption called into his family, doesn't it make sense then that we are to love? In fact, the very nature of God demands that we love. God is love. What about you? Now, some may profess to be Christians, but unless they resemble that they are the children of the Heavenly Father through love, it is likely they're not really born again. Of course, even in our best, we still have the old nature that interferes with the pure love that we might offer, and yet that should not be in any way uh, indicate that we cannot love, but in fact we do love and should love because it is the nature of our Heavenly Father to do so. But secondly, the example from God demands it. So not only is it the nature of God that demands it, but the example that we have from him also demands it. We see this in verses 9 through 11. And in verse 9 it says this, In this the love of God was manifested towards us. Now I like the way that that reads. Uh, The word manifested towards us carries the idea of something that has been shown to us. It is given us light. It is shown to us. That's what an example is. It's, it's showing to us a certain thing. And so it says that his love was manifested towards us. It was shown to us. 
And how? It says in verse 9, The love was manifested towards us that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In other words, it was His great plan of redemption that uh, made for Him to send His Son, His only begotten Son, the one that was uh, one with Him. He humbled Himself and take upon Himself the form of a man so that He might be the new Adam to do what the first Adam was not able to do and remove the curse. This demonstrates that His love was a giving love. But secondly, it also says in verse 10, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, this carries the idea that he is, he is the example for us and that he initiated his love towards us. You know, it's one thing when we love somebody who loves us. But when we initiate love towards someone who does not love us, that's a whole nother level. And what do we find in the scriptures? We find it says that God loved us when we did not love him. And it says that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We encountered this word. It's a great word. We first encountered it in chapter 2, verse 2 of this letter. And in case you've forgotten what it means, it means appeasement or satisfaction. It carries the idea of the, the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross satisfied the demands of God's wrath for sin because upon the cross he took himself upon himself our sin so that upon the cross the wrath of God was poured out upon Christ and because of that it satisfied the wrath of God that was demanded uh, because of sin that is there needed to be a sentence completed to fulfill the demands of God's justice you know the same thing is true today if it were not Christ uh, that would pay the demands of the justice, then we have ourselves has to pay uh, that demand. In fact, the Bible says clearly that the wages of sin is death. That's what we all owe. And unless Christ had paid that penalty for us, unless uh, he took upon himself the wrath that was due to us, then we would have no way of satisfying that justice unless we gave of our own life. By God's grace, he has provided someone to pay the penalty for us. In Christ. Now we have another picture in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5 of this, when it talks about the mercy seat in the temple. We talked about the temple this morning in our Sunday school class. Um, and if you recall, what took place is uh, the Ark of the Covenant was situated in the Holy of Holies, which was like the, the, the designated place within the temple where God met with his people. And so once a year, the high priest had to go into this Holy of Holies and he had to sprinkle the blood of the covenant upon the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was the covering that was over the ark. And underneath or inside the ark was the law. This was the, the demands of God. And the mercy seat covered over that. And the blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat demonstrated that it is the blood that covers over the mercy and allows for the mercy to cover the law. And so we see this beautiful picture of this taking place. In Leviticus chapter 16, verse 15, it says this. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil... Do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. It also says in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is what is reminded when we participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, as we spoke about this morning in our uh, Sunday school class. This demonstrates that his love was indeed a sacrificial love. 
And then finally in verse 11, it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we, uh, we also ought to love one another. Not only should our love be directed towards God because of his great love for us, but our love should be directed towards others because of his great love for us. You know, it is gracious of God to give us such a great example. And the reason is because we learn so much by examples, don't we? I mean, those of you who have children or grandchildren, you know that if a child tries to do something new, very often what they'll do is they'll, they'll come to you and they'll say, you show me first, or you do it first. They want to be able to see you do it because then they have an actual example of doing it. In the military, we were always told that what you do is you, you watch someone do it, and then someone helps you do it, and then you do it yourself, and then you teach someone else how to do it. And by the time you teach someone else how to do it, you've got it down. And that's the way that they teach. And that's a good way of teaching because much of it is, is hands-on. It's exemplifying exactly how it is that we are to do something. And so what do we have here? We have the perfect example of God. No greater example could he give than to demonstrate his love for us, manifest his love for us, and show to us what it's like to love. It's not enough if we just um, say that we love, but we are to also exemplify love Now, some children raised in homes where there was little love, uh, in fact, sometimes there was abuse in homes, say that they have no example of love. But the reality of it is we do have an example of love. We have the greatest example of love, and that is the Scriptures and what God has done for us. Not not knowing how to love should never be used as an excuse uh, to prevent us from loving because we have the ultimate example in Christ And the good news is that we know how to love. We know how to love because he first loved us. If we use his example to measure how then we are to love, how do we compare? Is your love characterized by giving? Or is your love selfishly motivated with ulterior motives for self-gain? God gave his only begotten son. Let us love purely not for the sake of ourselves, but for the sake of those with whom we love. Is your love characterized by initiation? God loved us when we were unlovable and when we did not love him. And so are you waiting for someone to show you love first? Or are you initiating that love to them? And then thirdly, is your love characterized by sacrifice? Or do you love only until there is a requirement for sacrifice and then you stop? (laughs) No, we are to love all the way through to the end. So not only is the example of God uh, demand our love, but also the witness for God demands it. The witness for God demands it. We see this in verse 12, and it says this, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. Now the argument goes something like this. Since no one has seen God, we who proclaim God show to the world what God is like. And so if we love, we demonstrate to the world that God is love. If we do not love, then we demonstrate to the world that God is not love. Now the world expects, now when I say world, I mean just in generally the population of the people around us. Uh, The world expects more out of the church than it does from the general citizens, doesn't it? And we are often held to a higher account, which I think is good. But too often I am afraid that the church gives a false testimony, a false witness 
of what God is, God is like because uh, we fail so often to demonstrate the character of God in our own life. You've probably heard it said before that the only revelation that some people ever see is the revelation that you show them with your life. Now, I wonder sometimes what kind of revelation we show about what that is. Imagine for a moment that all you knew of potatoes was a rotten one. You, you, I'm sure, come across a rotten potato. We have a place in our house that we store for our potatoes, and we put them in a little bin out in the utility room. And periodically, we will go by that room, and you'll get that smell. You know what I mean by that rotten potato smell. And uh, usually what happens when that occurs is Joanna says, Honey, you need to sort through these. (laughs) There's a rotten one in there somewhere. And so sure enough, I'll go out to the porch and I'll take out all the potatoes. And at the very bottom, it's always at the very bottom, there'll be that one potato. And it will be mushy. And it will stink. And it just, oh, just horrible. Well, imagine for a moment if that's all you knew of the potato, was a rotten potato. How many of you all would be interested in eating that? No, it's It's horrible. And yet I think sometimes I'm afraid that as Christians what we do is we present God in a way that gives the people an odor that is bad. And what we are told here is that our witness of God should be so good, so sweet because of our love that they are drawn to Him rather than turned away. Now the reality of it is that unless their nature is changed by the grace of God, they will not love Him. And yet the means that God uses very often is his people. And so my question is, what kind of aroma are you giving to the world in your witness? Are you given an aroma of sweetness and of love? Are you given an aroma of sourness and rottenness? Consider this when it comes to uh, world affairs. You know, you'll hear on the news today, especially as we as we hear Uh, politicians trying to uh, pander for votes and all this, you will hear them talking about the the affairs in the Middle East and how they want to go and uh, blow up this Muslim group or blow up that Muslim group. And and, uh, I, I want us to picture for a moment what it would be like to be a Muslim in one of those areas. And you hear on the news, the President of the United States, and and for better or worse, we're still called a Christian nation. Now, I know that we have departed very much from our Christian foundations, and uh, the vast majority of the United States is probably not Christian, and yet we're perceived as a Christian nation overseas. And so here you have political leaders of a nation that is called the Christian nation, and they are regularly talking about bombing the Muslims and, you know, fighting with this group and fighting with that group overseas. And if you are one of those people overseas, what are you thinking about this God that the Christians worship in uh, in the United States? Are we giving a good aroma of God? Or are we giving a sour taste of Him? <clears throat> it reminds me of a, a song by a singer that I enjoy a great deal. And I'm not going to burden you with the song itself because... Um, that never comes off very good. But there is one phrase in there that I like. It says you can't just go bomb the whole world in God's holy name. The reason why is because it, it, uh, it demonstrates um, that, that God is not a God of love. Now, I understand that there is a difference between 
standing up for what is right and doing what is right and speaking what is right and speaking what is true um, and, and not wavering on that. And we must do that as Christians. We must stand strong in the truth. We must uh, say that sin is sin. But I think sometimes in the way in which we do that, the attitude in which we say it, and sometimes adding to it things that are not, um, we demonstrate to the world a poor witness of God's love. And so we are to love why? Uh, because it uh, helps in our witness of who God is. But fourthly, the relationship with God demands it. The relationship with God demands it. We see this in verses 13 through 16. And in verse 13, well, actually, first of all, let me say this. Uh, in, I had mentioned this over and over again, but I'm hoping that by now you will have uh, understood this. So when you come across something like this in your own Bible study, in your own Bible reading, it will, it will trigger your memory. But any time that there is a word that is repeated over and over again in a passage of Scripture, it's a good indication that that is a theme in it. And what we find is we find the word abide used four times in these four verses. It's only left out in verse 14, but it's used four times in these four verses. And so we could conclude from this that this passage, these four verses, is about abiding in Christ. It's about a relationship with him. This is a common word of John's with reference to our relationship with God, and it carries the idea of remaining in close or good relationship with someone. It carries the idea of standing with somebody through the thick and the thin. It remains with someone to remain, be united with him, uh, to be one in heart and mind and will. And so it is reasonable that uh, we are to have that kind of relationship with God. We call someone a friend who remains with us through the good times and the bad. We have a special relationship with our spouse to whom we promise to be with them in sickness and in health, in riches and in poverty. And so verse 13, it says this, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. There is a relationship there. There is a, a giving. There is a, a, a renewing through the Spirit of God that ensures that we are abiding in Him. Verse 14, it says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. This relationship is built upon the reality of God's plan of redemption. We know this. We believe this. We testify of this. Verse 15, it says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Confesses carry the idea of a right belief or doctrine cannot be separated from a relationship with God. And so because we believe certain things, because we confess certain things, our relationship with God is established and confirmed. And then finally in verse 16, this is the heart of the verse or heart of the passage. It says, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in his love abides in God and God in him. This emphasizes, again, the relationship between love and the closeness that we have with God. The argument of these verses then seems to be this. God is love, and because he is love, Christians abide in him, then we will love. He says it this way in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 9. He says, as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You cannot separate a relationship with God and love. 
It, it would be similar. I don't know how many of you all remember back in your chemistry class, but this is a, a basic chemistry uh, model, and so most of you probably can remember this. But water is made up of two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen, right? That's why I call it H2O. In fact, sometimes you probably abbreviate water, at least I do, with H2O. It's one of the most common uh, symbols on the periodic table or combination of molecules in the hydrogen and the oxygen. And to say that you can be in relationship with God but not love is like saying you can have water without hydrogen or oxygen. You can't. Hydrogen and oxygen make up water. To say that you can have water one without the other, it makes no sense. And the same thing is true. When we say that we have a relationship with God, but we do not love, it makes no sense. In fact, by having a relationship with God, we will love. You cannot claim to be in a relationship with God and not experience and express His love. If you do not love, chances are, You have no relationship with him. And then fifthly, the hope of God demands it. The hope of God demands it. We see this in verses 17 through 19. In verse 17 it says this, Love has been perfected among us in this. Now, um, when he says perfected here, it does not mean that we are perfect. It does not mean that uh, when we are Christians that we have some kind of sinless perfectionism that occurs, that we can no longer sin. He has uh, identified that earlier in the letter, and he won't contradict himself, but he says that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So we can't be saying here that if we um, are in Christ that we will have a perfect love. No, I think what he's saying here is that uh, there is this idea of having a infatuation, a short-term love, uh, a a mild love, and having a long-lasting, long-term love. And as Christians, we are to have a perfect love, a love that endures, a love that remains, a love that stays. Love enables us, then it says, to have boldness in the day of judgment. It says that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we. In the world. Now, boldness very often in the scriptures carries this idea of having confidence in speech. And I have been told that one of the most difficult things for people to do is to speak in public. That's why it's very hard for people sometimes to pray in public, because there is a fear that people will think badly of them if they say something wrong or if they say something they shouldn't say or they get confused in their words. And so uh, if you call upon somebody to speak in public, uh, you will sometimes see their face go flush, and that it's just—it's very, very fearful. And I've obviously never had a problem speaking in public, which is a good thing. But I'm actually called in the ministry because it would be really hard <laughs> if I was afraid of speaking in public. But what this says is that if, if very often the reason why people are afraid of speaking in public is they are fear rejection. Well, the good news is, is that we as Christians who have a right relationship with God because we are in him, there is no need for fear. Why? Because perfect love casts out fear. And so we can have confidence in judgment, not because of anything in us, but because of God's love for us. And so verse 18, it says this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. That is that believers need not fear because there is no need for torment. There is no torment in store for us. Because he loved us, we need not fear. 
It is important to point out, though, that those who are not in Christ should and do fear. But those of us who are in Christ need not fear. By the way, this speaks against the Roman Catholic teaching of purgatory. Uh, Those who are believers uh, will experience no fear because there's no need for torment. Purgatory teaches that there is this temporary place between uh, heaven and uh, hell, and you must go and finish paying for your sins. And, uh, of course, that is not taught in the Scriptures. What we have clearly identified in the Scriptures is that there is this, this hope that we can have, that we can escape the wrath of God, the fear of torment, because we are in Christ. And that those who are not in Christ, of course, do not have that kind of fear or do not have that kind of hope. Verse 19, it says, we love him because he first loved us. This reemphasizes the the initiation with which God has loved us and reminds us that if we do not love, it is not because we have uh, something within ourselves by which we have mustered up love, but rather it is because God has loved us first and entered into a relationship with us. He has brought us to life, worked faith in us, worked repentance in us, is sanctifying us, and also gives us the hope of escaping everlasting Uh, wrath and gives us the hope of everlasting life romans chapter 8 verses 14 and 15 says this for as many as are led by the spirit of god these are the sons of god for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out abba father second timothy chapter 1 verse 7 says this for god has given us for god has not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so again, this carries the idea of motivation. Why is it that we are to love? We are to love because we have a hope of escaping everlasting wrath and because he has given us a good hope. You see, it's much easier to love someone who loves us first, isn't it? Uh, It's much easier to love someone um, that has demonstrated love to you. What is hard is loving someone who doesn't love you. And so God, in initiating that love towards us, enables us to more easily love him. It is a vast difference, but it is a hope that makes the difference. And that is that this is what characterizes Christianity from all the other religions. All all of them say that if you love God, he will love you. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says that he loved us first. And so we love him. Christianity reverses it. We have hope because he has done something to give us hope. They all say, do this or do that, and you will have a relationship with Christ. But the scriptures teach he did this and he did that. And so we can have a relationship with him. Big difference. So what motivates you to love? Is it that you can be good enough that God will love you someday? I hope not. Because none of us can be good enough. The hope that we have is that he has first loved us. And so we can love him. And then sixthly, as though this was not enough, he gives us probably the most important motivation. And that is that he commands us to love him and to love others. The commandment of God demands it. We see this in verses 20 and 21. It says this, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen. Now the idea behind this is that it's much more easier to love someone tangible, something that we can see, someone that we can experience, rather than a God who is intangible and uh, something that we can only experience in a spiritual level. And so if we cannot love our brothers, how can we say that we can love God? 
And he commands us in verse 21, And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And the form of the verb here, love, carries the idea of a continuous action. It's not something that we're just a one-time love our brother. It is something that we are to do over and over and over again for all of our life. It is something that needs repeating. The commandment is clearly stated. If there is no other instruction or argument or illustration regarding love, this should be sufficient motivation for us. Why? Because the God of the universe, the Holy One, the one who brought us into existence, who is over all and rules all and reigns as king and sovereign king of the kings, commands us to love. Do we need any more motivation than that? <laughs> we shouldn't. And yet in his grace, he's given us more. You know, we follow all kinds of laws and authorities in this world. At least we should. I hope we're not completely lawless. Children, if your parents tell you to go and clean up your room, you do it, right? At least you should. Uh, Why? Because they are an authority in your home, right? Uh, Those of us who still have uh, employers, if your boss tells you to be 15 minutes to work early tomorrow... Do you show up 15 minutes early to work? I hope you do. Why? Because your boss is your authority in your workplace. Those of you who are driving, when you come to a red light, you stop, right? Because the authorities say to and because it's for your own good and for your own safety, right? And so you you stop at the red lights. Well, if... If we obey our parents in our home when they tell us to clean up our room, if we obey the bosses in the workplace because they are our boss and they require us to go 15 minutes early, if we obey the authorities, the civil authorities that tell us to stop at a red light for our own good and for the good of those around us, how much more when the God of the universe, the one who has created everything, the one who has redeemed us with his own blood, the one who has prepared for us a place, the one who gives us a hope of everlasting life, the one who has secured for us all things good, commands us to love. Should we not? Of course, we should. And so we shall, by God's grace. May God give us the grace to obey the command. It reminds me of what Augustine said, the Augustine of Hippo in the 4th century, in his confessions, wrote, asking of God for help, he said this, Give us what you command, and command whatever you will. That's what we need, isn't it? For God to give us the ability to love, so that we might be able to follow his command to love. Let us pray. If today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? One day we'll wither away And to this world we'll have to say goodbye 
But just like the plant that withers away, we will leave many seeds behind. If today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? If today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? What will you do to change your legacy?